This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to episode 9, series 2 of John Richardson and the Future Notes. I'm John Richardson, I'm joined by the Future Notes, who are Mr. Mark Stevenson. Hello. And Mr. Ed Gillespie. Hello. We're here to discuss death, uh, but before we come on to that cheery topic, uh, a word of thanks, as usual, for all your uh, correspondence in the last week or so. People seem to have very much enjoyed uh, the company of James Thornton and Brian Eno as much as we did, I think. I oh, know, they definitely did. People have just been saying, how are you going to top that episode? And so the only way we can top it is by going straight to death. So yeah, it- straight to the end. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people off the back of that podcast, somewhat prescient conversation about uh, the closure of coal mines and using the law to do so. A lot of people have followed up with questions about whether Client Earth have any plans to intervene in the building uh, or the proposed building of a coal mine in Cumbria. And I believe we can offer an update. Uh, yes. So um, I had a chat with uh, James and at the moment they're waiting for the political conversation to happen. So there's an insane amount of pressure on the prime minister at the moment to go, what the hell are you doing? Um, you can't. So, and, and it's coming from everywhere. It's coming from the business world. It's coming from the legal world. It's come from within several government departments. And so there is a thought that uh, let's see if, if that works and if it doesn't then james says he has a team of lawyers looking into all uh, avenues um hold up uh, i won't say where um looking at it right now so um so my not, not that we make predictions ed and i but my my prediction if i have one is is i would say 90 percent sure that that thing will never get built yeah it's a bit wow. like it's a bit like darth vader describing the construction of the death star is an amazing job creation opportunity uh <laughs> you know, or, or you know if you want to put a sort of pandemic spin on it it's a, it's like engineering a new strain or new variant of covid and deliberately releasing it into the community it's the sort of climate equivalent of that it does seem staggering in the year that we're inviting you know some of the most powerful nations on the planet here to discuss the future of the planet and how we can all look after it. It seems a, a, a radical thing to do. This is sort of like inviting a load of vegans around for dinner and then saying, the day before I'm going to kill a cow in the kitchen and just <laughs> leave bits of it strewn about for you to nibble on on the way to the toilet. Is that all right? The thing about this government, and I'm not making a party political point here because you know Labour governments have been just in bad in other areas, is what you see is an absolute lack of systems thinking or strategic leadership. 
so that it's kind of like oh we'll, we'll fudge it whatever we'll, we'll try and keep everybody happy and and uh, we've seen it with covid which is why you know as we'll find as we'll discuss in this podcast you know we, we are as carrie had lovely puts it winning on the death numbers because of this lack of strategic leadership that you really need and systems leadership that you need and we're seeing it now with the climate which is absolutely you know you know you'd think after covid they, they would learn <laughs> exactly. it's, it's really surprising given boris johnson's long track record of systemic and strategic thinking <laughs> Uh, what staggers me about Boris Johnson is that my awareness of uh, you obviously can't just compare daily life and politics, but since having kids, I'm very grateful for what in my 20s was the curse of compulsive thinking. If you've got kids and you can't plan at least two steps ahead of them in terms of what the activity is and what the meal's going to be and what time bath's going to be, the minute you're on the same page as the kid. You're absolutely you're, you're done. That day is over. You need to be ahead of them and say, right, this is happening, then this is happening, and then it's bath, and then it's bed. And the one thing I know that Boris Johnson is good at is having children. It just makes me wonder about how he parents. I mean, it must just be chaos. And indeed, your point about getting ahead of the kids, if you were, go back and look at the, the advice on dealing with pandemics, it's always get ahead of the virus, be you know, close things down before it gets there, you know, do the hard work right at the beginning, which is mm-hmm. nations that did that very successfully, like um, New Zealand, you know, uh, and now they're reaping the rewards of that. I mean, you can go out for a beer in New Zealand now, uh, you know, and people keep saying, oh, yeah, but it's right for them. I mean, they're an island. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as are we last time I checked. Yeah. Yeah. I've already run Elsie's bath tomorrow night. That's how ahead <laughs> I am. <laughs> Um, so we also have, it has to be said, a number of nice comments broadly uh, about the podcast and um, uh, Amelia has sent one of those and it follows up with, uh, I read this because it follows up with a request for a topic and, and just to point out that we do read all the emails and we take the suggestions seriously. Uh, Amelia is a, a Chinese student and she says, a topic I hope this podcast can touch on is the future of social media slash censorship uh, as increasing types of contents can be accessed by an increasingly larger demographic of social media users, especially on platforms like TikTok. Uh, Mark, uh, Ed, do you want to plug your TikTok pages now? What is TikTok? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, You can find Mark at what is TikTok. Um, (laughs) Now, she says the word censorship may come as a negative concept to a lot of people because it's usually associated with government control, but indeed it can be a tool we seek for when it comes to regulating online content. For example, most parents are concerned with whether their kids are influenced by online content, which may make them hope there's no sexual content, um, and they've been trying to regulate it. So she says uh, some of them have thought about using real name registration, i.e. Uh, requiring ID from users, uh, to regulate the users. However, as uh someone Chinese who has been under the impact of intensive government internet censorship and real name registration, I wonder if this is the way to go. Is it even possible to have an online environment in which people have freedom of expression while no one is hurt and kids are protected? Uh, it's a good question. What do you think? Is there is there a podcast to be had in discussing censorship and, and the online world? There absolutely is one. I think Amelia gets to the point there of that, that real tension between freedom of speech and the way that speech can hurt people. And I think, you know, what you kind of want is a mixture of the two, where um, anonymity, I think, is dangerous because it allows people to say anything about anybody. Um, But you also don't want censorship that is state-sponsored 
because um, well we know what happens in china i mean basically you're a broadcaster if you're if you're using twitter you're broadcasting and broadcasters you know we have we know where they are and they are regulated and i think if you're going to start broadcasting then you should probably be regulated whether you're an individual or a business but you know i don't think we want massive state sponsorship either but yes i think there is as you can tell i think there is a uh, a whole episode in this because i you know that's only one view and i could be completely wrong no, there's, no, I think there's, there's something very powerful about the idea of freedom with accountability, you know, so the, the freedom of speech and the freedom to express yourself, but also to know whose interests you're representing, uh, where you might be coming from and, and who you might be there for negatively impacting upon. And I think that's the sort of balance has to be struck, but it's a tricky one. And I think Amelia's sort of, you know, highlighted the, the very real tensions that exist. Um, so uh, possibly a podcast to be had then on the future of social media. And on that, we've had a tweet in from at Big Dick 69 um, <laughs> which I assume is a real name. Now, do uh, do email in if you, have, uh, if you have suggestions for future topics. To move on to uh, this week's theme, and this will tell you everything you need to know about me. I'm really excited about this one. Um, economics i'm very aware i'm out of my depth i don't really know what i'm talking about and i don't really know what i'm talking about in terms of this topic but i'm excited to discuss it because it's the sort of thing i enjoy as a miserable bastard so we're here to discuss death we have uh, as ever uh, an expert with us and i will hand over to ed to uh, to tell us who we've got this week yeah for, so for this week's episode we are joined by the amazing Ad lloyd comedian actor writer and of course podcaster who has won multiple gongs galore on both stage and screen uh and we've specifically invited Cariad to join us today for uh her work on Griefcast, which is her multi-award winning podcast which deals with the loss of loved ones and when i lost my brother will about 18 months ago i listened to many episodes of Cariad's show because it was the combination of the crying and the laughter and the horror and the beauty and actually the sort of tenderness that came through and uh it's wonderful so welcome to the show Cariad. Oh, thank you very much for having me. And I'm very sorry to hear about Will as well. I will mention him probably later in the episode. But yeah, Griefcast was an enormous comfort for me. Uh, obviously, a very th- difficult time as it is for so many. I mean, that's all very important. But I think there's a more important question, which is how come your podcast wins those awards and how can we do it? Because we haven't got any yet. So have you got any tips? <laughs> well, I a few years ago, I think, you know, if you talked about death, it was awkward to not give me the prize, wasn't it? Because it was like, are you going to give it to some blokes talking about, you know, their hockey club in the suburbs or are you going to give it to the girl whose dad died and is talking about it? It's awkward not to, isn't it? Right. So, but now I think actually there's so many podcasts dealing with so many brave and full-on topics that, yeah, that won't work anymore. So sorry, guys. I, I think you just have to be good. Oh, oh no. Yeah. Oh, God. I'm reminded of, I think, one of the greatest greatest jokes about death from Will Rogers. He said, when I die, I want to die like my grandfather who died peacefully in his sleep, not screaming like all the passengers in the backseat. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. How are we at in terms of death at the moment then? Because the sort of theme <laughs> of the podcast is we, we start by saying how fucked are we? The death numbers for the yeah. COVID today. I'm sort of aware. Well, I mean, beyond COVID, you know, we're, it's, it's a fascinating year to talk about death because we probably never discussed it more as a nation. It's yeah. It's the lead story on the news every day. And as you say, you sort of have to tackle if you have kids. You have to tackle mm. at some point on depending on their age that there's a virus and that the consequences of this virus people get very poorly. So as a nation, we are probably discussing death more this year than we have for a very long time. Yeah, my five year old said to my my wife the other day, 
So she, he was looking at a photograph of me or wanted to take a photograph of me or something. And, and, and his mum went, why? And he said, so I can remember daddy when he's dead. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's like, wow, <laughs> tough crowd. The kids at the moment are really tough because they hear it all the time. My eldest is four. Music was playing. I said, oh, my dad loved this. She went, yeah, but then he died. And I was like, yep, <laughs> true. Let's enjoy Earth, Wind and Fire and yeah. not talk about it. Um, but yeah, obviously COVID-19, coronavirus, pandemic we're currently living through it the death numbers are extremely high and in this country as well like obviously we are we are winners <laughs> of oh our God. death numbers we are really winning at that table beyond covid can i ask one of the videos that stuck with me most i've watched a lot of there was a period when everyone was talking about how norway have handled it and all that and sweden and mm. australia and new zealand and one of the videos a guy said well we had a, a very mild year last year and not many people died of flu last year. He went on to re- refer to those people as dry tinder, saying we well, sort of <laughs> would, have, would have expected more deaths this year anyway. And, right. and to refer to living people as dry, dry tinder, tinder blew my mind. Wow, but yeah. In terms of annual deaths, obviously COVID has put a certain number on, but I'm assuming still this year most people don't die of COVID. No, I mean, exactly. if you put your sort of stato hat on in terms of like, are, are we fucked question? I mean, in any given year, we get about 550,000 deaths uh, in the UK. So if you assume you had the 100,000 excess deaths from COVID, then 2020 is probably going to top 650,000 people dying. And then if you extrapolate that globally, we've got 58 million deaths in 2019. So add another 2 million for, for the pandemic and um, 2020 will probably top 60 million people dying globally. I mean, it, you're right. It's not what most people die of. I feel like uh, we should have that uh, chart music on there. So here's the chart of what kills people at number one, heart disease, uh, stroke, pulmonary disorders and lower respiratory tract infections are the top four of what normally kills us. So there you go. That's cheering news. I would say an answer of like, the, and obviously I would say this, like, are we fucked? It's like, we're all going to die anyway. Mm. Like, sorry, like that's that's something I am constantly saying of like COVID obviously has made everyone aware of what they've been trying to ignore. So no, not everyone will die of COVID this year. And the anxiety that you can have about living in a pandemic, you know, you can feel like I'm going to walk out the door and drop dead. And it's like, no, that won't happen. But we, even if you don't die this year, you are going to die. So it's not, are we fucked? It's like, are we ready to accept that? Are we ready to accept we're fucked? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or no, not. I would say not even like, like does death have to equal that? Like, is death yeah. the worst thing that can happen or is it just inevitable? It's still kind of a global experience of collective existential risk in a slightly sharper form though, isn't it? That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm talking about it more, I guess, holistically. And also as a woman, Carrie Ann, um, you, mm. you are less likely to die in any given year than than the three of us are because women live longer than men we do yeah we do it's all that resentment (laughs) (laughs) but literally everywhere in the world women live longer than men and some of that's genetic it appears so because women have an extra x chromosome that men don't have or rather we have one missing yeah you lost it just admit it. <laughs> I know where it is. Yeah. I know where it is. Where did you have it last, darling? Well, I'm not telling you because you should have paid more attention when you put it down. <laughs> but it's also actually to do with fat as well. So men mm. tend to have fat around their inner organs and, and, and ladies have more subcutaneous fat. So, oh, uh, thank you. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but also there's a, the social aspects which women tend to be less violent. They take less risks. They're generally less stupid and they generally look after their health better and smoke less and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. so on average, I think it's about five years difference between men and women on, uh, on life expectancy. Just have to keep holding out for that, don't we? <laughs> yeah. Look, guys, just get to the end. There's five years of peace, I promise. Just, just hold on. <laughs> Hold on. Eventually, they die, and then it's just you. <laughs> for five years of peace for women, infinite peace for dead men. <laughs> so, in this country, then to bring it back, how? I mean, let's bring it back right to me. How much longer have I got left? Anyone know? So it, it depends when you're born, really. Um, when were you born, John? September 1982, same day as Olivia Newton-John. Right. So when he was born, it was predicted that he would die at 71. Okay. Mm. But what's interesting is this thing called life expectancy creep, which means that the average age of death has been steadily edging upwards by, oh, rough, by roughly quarter of a year for every calendar year that's passed. Right. This is since vaguely reliable records began. Um, today, John's life expectancy as a 38, 37, 38, whatever you are, John, a year old male in 2021, you are expected on average to live until 85. Oh Ooh. God! Don't say expected. <laughs> Fuck that, Jesus! And 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 you share roughly you're roughly the same age as Michael, our wonderful producer, and both of you have roughly a six percent chance of making it to a hundred. But here's the thing: if life expectancy creep keeps going up a quarter of a year every year, then you'll probably hit a hundred just by pure statistical inertia. So how do we fare? How do we fare, Mark? Though, because uh, we're 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 veterans here, yeah, though, compared well, to Carrie Ad and John. So upset when they were talking about how old they were. <laughs> Just fucking <laughs> shut up, the pair of you. So we were born sort of early 70s, weren't we, uh, Ed? Keep it vague. Um, no, I'm 71. Right, okay. So um, I was born just after Elvis died. Not saying there's a link, but there you go. <laughs> fucking incredible you're still alive, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, so when we were born, uh, Ed, our life expectancy was actually just over 69 years. Um, but now we're up to 84. But again, if we keep on going, we're, we're likely to get to, you know, uh, sort of 95 or 100 if, if life expectancy creeps going. So we've got a four and a half percent chance of making it to 100. It's like an accumulated bet, isn't it? It, it is. Like, you know, it the, is. The, longer, the longer you go on, the longer you might go on. Now, some people think that this is going to run out, this life expectancy creep, because a lot of that is actually down to reducing infant mortality. Like you can't save the young oh. twice. So historically, infant deaths have been a really major factor in life expectancies. Uh, and also, there's, of course, your lifestyle is really important, you know, with the notable exceptions of Ozzy Osbourne and Keith Richards and indeed all of Aerosmith. There is a very well-established link between how somebody lives and how long they're, they're expected to live. Although the transhumanists, who we'll probably come to on another episode, believe that ageing and death are indeed diseases that can be cured. Well, how's, how's that going for them? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's surprisingly well when you think about it. If you think that, because uh, a lot of that life safety creep, you know, is saving the young, but some of it is indeed helping us live longer and healthier lives because of medicine, whatever. So, for instance, um, in my first book, I tell the story of how I had a really bad car accident when I was uh, 10 years old and I should have died. And the reason I didn't die was because I had a blood transfusion. And actually, blood transfusions had been invented in the 19th century by a guy called James Blundell. Now, in the natural order of things, you'd say, well, my life expectancy, you know, has been expanded by medicine. So the transhumans are saying, well, you know, we're just on this, this journey where, you know, blood transfusions and then cancer treatments and then all this stuff to the extent that we can extend, extend life. That, that there's a blurring between therapeutics and, and longevity therapy, which is a very interesting area, which we'll probably come back to in a, in a future episode on, on the future of aging, I think. Can I ask Cariad there on, because um, obviously you, you deal with a lot of the, the consequences of losing people and 
I guess broadly the discussion is always about coming to terms with your own mortality and as a, the transhumanist movement, this idea that we can live forever, do you think that's just people not dealing with the fact that they're going to die? Do you, <laughs> do you believe it is a scientific movement or do you think it's really just spoiled rich people? <laughs> I think you have to ask yourself why you want to. Because... Fucking right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like not, not even in the depressing way, but just like this is what I mean, like we're all going to die. Does... The acceptance of that doesn't have to be bleak. You know, we are born and we die. And the bit in between is this amazing, crazy, <laughs> insane adventure. Who knows what's going to happen? Why does the death have to be the worst thing? Uh, like genuinely, because if you have lost someone, obviously that it's very, very painful to lose someone. But once you accept people die, that's what happens. It doesn't take the pain away. But I think, oh, I don't know, I sound really hippie because I kind of am. Um, <laughs> you know, that's... <laughs> That's the process of life. Like, you know, life rolls on, time goes on, the seasons change. And I think the idea, I think obviously pushing medicine and, and trying to save people from pain is a is a very noble thing. I'm not someone who's like, no, don't give me that blood transfusion. I'm fine. Um, and, you know, I've given birth to two children and both times would, wouldn't be here if it wasn't for mm. <clears throat> modern medicine. But um, the idea of the longer you live equals happiness, I think is unusual. And and I don't I don't know why why getting to one hundred would equal like woohoo I've completed the computer game <laughs> like yes every level and the big baddie like it it doesn't what what's that famous what's that famous quote it's not it's not the, the life in your years not your years in your life years yeah. in your life yeah I, you remind yeah. me you must have seen this carrier Emily Levine's fam- famous TED talk about about dying and indeed she she has now died and she said I look at death now from the point of view of a German biologist Andreas Weber who said it was basically part of the gift economy. You're given this enormous gift life, which you enrich as best you can, and then you give it back. Yeah. And she said, I, I know my auntie said life is a banquet. Well, I've eaten my fill. I've had an enormous appetite for life. I've consumed life, but in death, I'm going to be consumed. I'm going to be in the ground just the way as I am. And I invite every microbe to have their fill. I think they'll find me delicious, which is quite a nice <laughs> way of looking at it. Yum, yum. That's so nice. And I think it's important to separate grief and death. Like I'm not obviously like pro grief is awful as like a lot of us know it's horrible and it's painful and it's fucking (laughs) like no one wants it, but it's part of having a relationship with someone in whatever that capacity is good or bad. But death, I think trying to fight something that you literally cannot fight, you know, it's not like bank accounts or mortgages or like the state or something you can sometimes like hide from it and go off grid. It's like, it's death. It's going to happen to everybody. So why fight it? Why make that your life's mission? Mm. I think it was Christopher Bullock, wasn't it, who said uh, in his 1716 play, The Cobbler of Preston, you know, I can tell I've looked that up. I don't know. <laughs> but it is the original source of that great quote. It is impossible to be sure of anything but death and taxes. Are, are our generation particularly pathetic in terms of avoiding death? Would you say, like, Do you think we, we are more aware of the fact we're going to die and at ease with it now than we were in the past, or is it is it the opposite? I mean, I, I don't know, and I... I did look at the kind of the cooperative funeral society uh, did a big survey, like the biggest survey they've ever done. 30,000 people, I think, were interviewed across the UK on attitudes to death. And what they found was actually 91% of us have actually thought actively about our own mortality, which is hopeful. Um, And that actually starts relatively young. Uh, 26 is the average age when people first begin to consider the fact that they won't be around forever. 
And 35% of people think about their immortality once a week or more. Uh, and that's pre-COVID data. So uh, there's a good chunk of us, a third of us, who are doing it quite regularly. And, and women think about their mortality slightly more than men, 93%. Well, we've got more 90. time, haven't we? So <laughs> <laughs> I find that staggeringly low. I don't want to sort of give a, a peek into my own brain, but a third of people think about it. Well, I think about it every fucking day. Yeah, yeah, I was like, once a week, who are these people? Wake up, you're going to die. Stop thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, Adrian Charles, it's not often we quote Adrian Charles on this podcast, but he uh, he said something really good on his show where he was like, I've just bought, I think he said he bought a new oven. And he was just like, I just wondered, you know, I've probably got one oven left. I'm like, <laughs> one. I started measuring my life in white goods. I thought it's a really funny observation. Of like two tellies, one oven. I think it's interesting that you get these conversations with people like, oh, I'm thinking about it after 40 because obviously my dad died when I was 15. So I'm part of the club of people who've been thinking about it for way longer than that. So mm. I'm just like, when people are like, oh, I got to 40, I'm worrying about the bathroom door. I'm like, mate, I was at fucking 16 thinking, what's the point of going to school? You're just going to get, you're just going to die. But I do think it's, Interesting. I think I think we think about death a lot, but actually those numbers are interesting because it's like, then what do we do about it? Like, do then people have a conversation about what they want at their funeral? Do they then, mm. you know, tell people their passwords? Or are they just thinking, oh, I might die? Or anyway, change the subject. And I think that's what would help us not be so fucked if we were like, cool, you know what? I've realized I'm definitely going to die. I am going to tell someone some passwords, <laughs> uh, mention what bank account I have, you know, just get a will and also tell people whether I want to be buried or cremated. Like the simplest things you can do that mean you know your loved ones won't be like having a row over it that's very sobering thought so while we're here my pin number is 4031 <laughs> <laughs> i have had this come my mum is uh maybe that's where i get it but she, she talks a lot she, she has a what she it used to be a black folder if she's listening i wanted to know it used to be a black folder it's now a perspex box but no. my sister and i are told frequently when it happens, there's a perspex box. Everything's in there, and we've oh, talked good. about we've talked about funerals and all that stuff. And uh, we're both of the um, put me in a cardboard box and leave me in a wood because that seems to me. We we're talking earlier about you know the, the the quote about I think all the microorganisms will enjoy eating me. I had the conversation with my four year old daughter today. We walked through a graveyard, and she said, "Are the worms eating everybody?" And I said, "Yes." Yeah. <laughs> um, seemed a perfectly normal conversation. We moved on. But um, that seems to me, it seems to me the most ecological way I can be buried is, I don't even want the cardboard box, really, but I just want to be chucked in a wood. No, we'll get on we'll get on to that because the problem is actually most of us are cremated at the moment. It's about seventy five percent. And actually this has huge environmental impacts. Um it's about four hundred kilos of carbon dioxide equivalent into the atmosphere per body, which is a quarter of a million tons a year of CO two going up there, which is the equivalent of driving fifty five thousand cars for a year or planting four million trees to be planted and grown for a decade to absorb it. Plus you've got this uh, nightmare that cremation fumes also include all the vaporized mercury from tooth fillings, which is about 16% of the UK's mercury emissions, and plus wow. all the to- plus all the toxic emissions from burnt prosthetics and melted bone cement uh, from like surgeries like hip replacements. So, and apart from that, it's the climate crisis. You know, we're reaching a climate catastrophe, and we're burning ourselves at the end of our lives. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> It's almost as if we're making a dead final message. Fuck it, I'm taking you the rest of you with me. <laughs> Creation is much more popular, and especially during the pandemic, because it's been quicker to organise, mm. easier mm. and cheaper. So they've actually had a rise in cremations uh, in 2020. And, you know, some countries, something like Japan, like it's something like 0.01% of them get buried. Like it's almost the entire 
country's choice is cremation. So I wonder what, like, are some countries worse than others? And also, what's the damage if you do get buried as well? Like, yeah. the ecological damage, because the financial damage on a family can be much harder for a burial. Well, it depends if you get embalmed or not, apparently. So, Ooh. you know, so if you get embalmed... You get embalmed these days? You're not Elvis. <laughs> I'm going to have a lot. There's going to be a lot of brute and old spice left in my cupboard. So I go for sort of cheap embalming. So there is the issue of embalming fluid leaking out and other sort of toxins if you've had radiotherapy or chemotherapy drugs oh, wow. uh, before you end up in the ground. And also, also traditional burial plots, not necessarily the woodland ones, but uh, burial space is becoming increasingly scarce and expensive mm, yeah, in built-up areas. And and actually, even the cost, I mean, the average cost of a, a basic funeral now is about four and a half grand. And interestingly, that's been increasing at 6% a year at double the inflation rate, which has prompted an investigation into the industry by the Competition and Market Authority. They're, they're even ripping us off at the end of our lives. Mm. Tip, you know what? You, this, is, this was on one of my episodes. Emma Freud said this. You don't have to have the funeral cars. You can just drive in your own car. But everybody feels like they should have a funeral car. Why? Like you don't have to have a limo for a wedding, but they're like, do you want the funeral car? Which then makes you think, oh, we should have a funeral car. That's what people do. I can't be insane to just drive in my own car. You don't. Because mm. you are at your most vulnerable at that point. Yeah, you really are. And actually, when my dad died, um, I I got a recommendation from a friend for a, for a company called Poppy's Funerals. You know, oh, who, I know them. Yeah, they're yeah. amazing. And and they and and that was you know that was basic that was basically an estate car that my dad yeah. was in the back of um, because as you say you don't need the great grandiose hearse. No. Uh, what was um, we also had a celebrant, but what was amazing about that as well was we had a cardboard coffin, which I got one of my designer mates at work at the time to to put my brothers and my dad's faces on the Beatles Sergeant Pepper. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so my dad's coffin was bright yellow. Uh, with this sort of Beatles motif of our faces and his face on the outside. And you should have seen the faces on the rest of the extended family when this thing emerged (laughs) from the van. Everyone was like, what kind of coffin is that? (laughs) I think that probably goes back to what we were saying about having the conversation, because if you are in a situation where you haven't had the conversation, you're not going to barrel in and say, bollocks, put him in a cardboard box. And equally, I guess a funeral director is not going to suggest... It'd probably be all right with a bit of cardboard, would it? Just stick him in a wood. <laughs> <laughs> so you do need to go in armed, so I guess. Right. You're so right. Like, and that's the thing. If, if something's suggested and you can confidently say, no, no, I know, I spoke to them. Mm. Of course, if it's suggested like, well, what, well, how much are you willing to spend on your dead dad? And you think, oh, I don't want to be a meanie. <laughs> and I, I know friends who, who haven't had the conversation and then end up yeah, feeling like, oh, well, we spent more because we felt like somehow it reflected on our respect for him, but we didn't really want to when we didn't know it because you said you need the Perspex box conversation. I think your mum yeah. is amazing, John. You've got, to, you've got to talk about it. But again, going back to that co-op survey, almost 5 million people say they're too uncomfortable to talk about their own death at all. Mm. You know, and I remember when my, again, when my dad died, you know, he died quietly in his sleep, which given the sleepless and noisy way he lived most of his life was like deeply, <laughs> deeply ironic. Um, and I remember, you know, talking to my brother and I said, well, now what the fuck do we do? You know, and my brother said, don't worry. I had a conversation with him about wow. it. And I said, what did he want? And he went, oh, you know, it was all very clear. He said he wanted to be buried in a wood with an apple tree on his head so we can make cider out of him. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Will then said, yeah, we can call it scrumpa. 
Um, and I said, no. I said, no, we're going to call it Patricider. And I, he goes, can't call it that. It sounds like you killed him. But this thing about talking about, which is why what you do carry out on your on your podcast is so important, is because there's no real there's no real mainstream places where we talk about death. I remember that very famous uh, Jerry Seinfeld joke, you know, where he says, according to most studies, people's number one fear is public speaking, and number two is death. <laughs> so, so that I mean that means that the, for the average person, if you're at a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than doing the eulogy. Yeah. <laughs> so there's no real mainstream place where we actually talk about it in that kind of an honest and useful way, which, and, and therefore I think that makes it more and more taboo, isn't it? The, the less you speak about it, the less you want to speak. Yeah, you learn by watching as humans and by practicing. So when you're younger, and say someone has a new baby. And you see your mum or your dad or your grandparents, you know, for other family, you see them the way they react to a new baby and you learn like, oh, okay. When we see new babies, we're like, oh, wow, oh, look, lovely. Oh, my goodness. And we talk about them and we don't spit in their faces and ignore them. Like, okay, got it. And because we don't talk about death in the same way, it's like we don't learn that. Like when someone dies, you know, what well, I definitely grew up when I was much younger of like, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. And that was about it. So you learn, oh, right. Mm. Okay, cool. So when people mention dead people, you say sorry and you move on. That's it. And that's what we learn. And that's nobody's, it's not to blame anybody, you know, it comes from hugely cultural and sociological reasons that people have found it difficult to talk about but we have to get better at it otherwise you know the next generations won't be able to talk about it and I I find it really weird that it's like not discussed in school something like that like we're all going to go through that process we're all going to die why don't we talk to people about how to talk about death um what the difference in funerals are like what is funeral cremation like this is what it all looks like because for so many people a big part of the grief after a death is just the shock that they they didn't know it was going to feel like this they hadn't ever spoken to anyone they didn't know what you know a funeral felt to organize but it's like imagine if you just someone just gave you a heads up like and made it not scary I I find it really genuinely confusing that it's not talked about more because it it is something that's going to happen to everybody I don't I don't know how you found it with all the interviews you've done or even your own personal experience carrier but I found the ritual of the funeral the kind of preoccupation with some of the logistics is actually such a kind of fundamental part of an initial distraction actually because it gives you something to focus on yeah that's very common reaction that some people say they found it really helpful that they had something to focus on it kept them busy kept them organized but obviously yeah after the funeral can be tricky and then after yeah then afterwards is when it really really hits you is Mm. is like you sort of come out of the back of that ritual uh, and then it's like oh and now i'm supposed to return to some shape or form of normality whatever that yeah and also society then acts like it's done so when you're arranging a funeral everyone's in contact with you they're sending cards you see them they you know well if in pre-covid times they can give you a hug or they can drop around food and then they're like okay funeral's over you sort of stop hearing from people and like if you've been through it you know day after the funeral that is when you should phone them (laughs) like that is when you should drop around food because that's when suddenly everyone's like oh well we saw them and this happened and it can be really really difficult to deal with that bit once all the admin of it is over do you think that having talked about having more conversations about death and arming ourselves generally as a society do you think that would change if we'd talked more or do you think that's just there there is no way of preparing for certain deaths parents and, and and close family there's just no amount of preparation is enough and after a funeral you you are inevitably going to have a crash and a reassessment of where you're at yeah I think you can't protect yourself from pain pain grief is pain and and that is inevitable like as a part as I said of having a being in relationship with someone um so you can't protect yourself from the pain but you can I think help yourself through the process and definitely help with the shock I think just prepping people for 
what someone even looks like when they're dead, you know, or like how they might sound. I spoke to an amazing woman called um, Catherine Mannix. I don't know if you come across her. She's a palliative care doctor and she wrote a book with the end in mind, which is literally stories of how people died. And on my show, she came on and literally described what sound and how people look and sound as they're dying. And I had so many people get in contact with me after that episode going, oh my God, thank you. Like, as my dad was dying, he made this noise. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know that it was the body reacting, not the brain. And you go, well, isn't that just useful information to have? Like if, in case you do go something through this, I mean, mm. I get it. not everyone is going to, and it is morbid. Not everyone wants to think about these things, but if you are encountering it, if someone is sick or you, some of us are blessed with preparation time. Few of us aren't. People just die very suddenly, but if there is any chance to prepare yourself, why, why wouldn't we want that? My friend, a friend of mine, his, when his dad passed, and he was actually in the hospital at the bedside, when his heart stopped, his mum and him were there, uh, you know, and it was the, obviously the emotional moment of the transition. Uh, but then his pacemaker kicked in um, <laughs> and actually temporarily resurrected him, restarted oh his heart. Oh, my God. And it happened apparently three or four times before they managed to get, um, oh, you know, medical no. assistance. But he said, you know, by the time it happened a fourth time, they were both in hysterics. Yeah. You know, it, it comes back to what you talk about on Griefcast a lot, Carad, you know, that sort of the horror and then the humour. Yeah, you know, some, sometimes it's the dark laughter that you just have to have. Because, you know, uh, and my mate said, he goes, he goes, my dad would have found it hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's good. As long as you can all know, all agree, they would have also found this quite funny. Um, yeah, the the humour, that, that's how people cope, is through laughing at things. And, you know, that's so, that is funny. <laughs> like, yeah. That is funny that they were trying to have a moment. It got ruined by a pacemaker. Like that, that would be in a film. Like, yeah. and I think that's so what I try and do on the show. Like we always say, we're not laughing about the fact that someone died. People dying is not a funny thing. But the things that happen around dying, absolutely hilarious. Mm. Um yeah, there's been so many stories on my show of like, you know, someone having a saying goodbye and the cleaner coming by and being like, I won't start the Hoover just yet. Like, <laughs> like, their dad. They're like, yeah, thanks. You just, he literally just started. <laughs> well, my favorite is um, Adam Buxton. His dad was very sick, very old, but and was dying at home, but obviously still horrible situation. And they had, um, I don't think it was Mamillion. They had a carer in, you know, trying to help him. And they were like lifting his dad up, like Adam and this guy. And it was very difficult. And his dad was making those really awful sounds when someone is really close to the edge and they're just in pain. And the carer said, I know you, don't I, dad? <laughs> As they were lifting his dad. He was Jesus. like, on the telly, aren't you? And Adam was like, it's like the worst moment you can be asked of like, and he was like, do I say I've done Dictionary Corner? Do I? Yeah. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, that's so funny. Well, topping and tailing that one from death to birth, Fiona Bruce t- tells a story that when she was in the hospital having one of her children, you know, the uh, the gynecologist was um, in the position to deliver the child and looked up, you know, and just said, is this a good time to tell you how much I love your work? <laughs> <laughs> Still got the image of a hospital cleaner in a doorway, sort of gently I turning know. a Henry Hoover so the face is facing into the corridor rather than into the room. <laughs> I know. But death is, 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 as we're demonstrating, is kind of, we do joke about it. And I often think when I you know, speak to two comedians is what comedians often joke about is the difficult stuff, the mm. true difficult stuff. They talk about death, relationship failure, parenting disasters or whatever. So it's strange that it's something that we'll accept in comedy. We will go and see a comedy show 
where people will talk to us about death and really difficult things. And yet somehow we can't have that conversation in normal life. So what's happening there? What, or how is it that you guys can talk about it, say, for hours on a stand-up stage and we all accept it, but when it comes to somewhere else, we can't? I think that comes back to acceptance that it's going to happen to you. So I think it's so hard for people to accept that they will die um, and that everyone they love will die. And you want to avoid that. And then obviously what laughter does is kind of it, it gives you like a biscuit at the end of the horrible meal. <laughs> so it's like you're going to die. Oh, look, look it's, a, look, it's a chocolate hobnob. Come on, that's lovely. <laughs> and it's it just breaks up the pain of what you are facing. But that's what I think. Like if you if we can move it away from being such a painful, awful thing and make it more accepting, then well, maybe, you know, you don't need to make chocolate hobnobs. You always need chocolate hobnobs. I'd like to retract that statement. I just think, you know, <laughs> building on what we were saying earlier, you know, the other way that we could mix it up a bit is learning from other cultural funereal oh, yeah. traditions yeah, yeah. from around the world. You know, I mean, I, I was just doing some, you know, digging for the show and it was just, well, sorry, I shouldn't say that, should I? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, there's the kind of Irish traditions of the wake and the kind of the sky burials they do in Tibet where you know you get cut up and eaten by raptors and vultures or the indian gap fires but then i then i started to get into the more quirky stuff actually which you know at one level you know your initial reaction to it is like oh my god who would want to do that and in in tana Taraja in east indonesia you know they have a week of feasts with the corpse a whole week of parties at which you know the corpse is the central guest of honor it's treated and celebrated like the person is still alive I mean, in Papua New Guinea, they often effectively smoke the relative by placing them in the rafters of the hut. So the fumes from the fire end up preserving them in a sort of semi-mummified state. Or in Madagascar, they do this thing called the turning of the bones, where they actually dig people up every five to seven years uh, to reconnect with them. Wow. And I remember when I was on my trip around the world, it, was, it happened to be in Mexico for Day of the Dead. Oh, wow. Uh, this is 15 years ago, and I wasn't quite... I wasn't very au fait. I mean, Day of the Dead has become a lot more um, uh, high profile, I guess, in, in Europe now uh, than it was then. And I remember seeing, I've been on a bus driving through a town and passing a graveyard and not being able to work out what was going on because every grave had been festooned with candles and marigold flowers and there were I mean, parties going on in the graveyard. And I remember sitting on this bus and looking at the way and going, what earth is going on in that graveyard? And there's something beautiful about the Day of the Dead in the fact that, you know, they the belief is that the, the dead are still with us as long as they're remembered, as long mm. as they're actively remembered, as long as they're, you know, they're celebrated and we, we take the iconography and the imagery or the things that they loved in their life, their favourite food or their favourite drink. And there's something beautiful about that. Perhaps one of the best ones, I went down a particular wormhole on this one, are the Ghanaian fantasy coffins. You know, people have these enormously elaborate coffins which represent some aspect of their life. So, you know, if you're a marine biologist, you might have a coffin that was in the shape of a whale or, you know, your fantasy car um, coffin or even an airplane, you know. <laughs> it's like, uh, and they're, and they're, they're almost like carnival floats. So, you know, I think there's there's so much sort of other joyous and collective, collaborative ways of celebrating the loss of people that we might learn from our brothers and sisters around the world. 
Mm. Can I just, I have a question I particularly want to ask Carrie based on that, Ed. You've been doing this for a long time. You've been talking about the subject a lot. You've probably gained this view of it. And so I was just listening to Ed there and thinking, you know, there's that accepted kind of Kubler-Ross model of grief, isn't it? You know, denial, anger, bargaining, yeah. depression, acceptance. But listening to Ed talking, it's like, well, it seems to me that they're, they're not doing some of those or they're fiddling with them. Do you have any different thoughts on, you know, whether that stages of grief thing that we've all come to hear about so much works? Is it is it a general template or is it just, you know, another theory that's that's in vogue at the moment? And are there different ways of doing grief, you know, more like some of the ones that Ed might have been talking about? Well, read my book, chapter three. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can tell you're a celeb because straight in it's like, come on. Yeah, heaven, heaven forbid you would ever mention your books on this podcast, Mark. <laughs> It's a bit tricky because I I really, I get a bit passionate about this, not in any way funny. I can't describe to you enough how unhelpful the Kubler-Ross model is, how out of date it is, and how if you want to look at any other grief theories, it doesn't work. That's my personal opinion. I'm not in any way a psychologist at all. I'm literally, hey, you want grief advice from a character comedian? You've come to the right place. <laughs> <laughs> Degree in grief? No. Degree in English literature? Yes. Okay, continue. So, um... The Kubler-Ross book, which is where the five stages come from, was written for people who were dying. So the five stages that she came up with was a template to put on uh, people who were dying of terminal illness. It was never, ever meant to apply to the grieving. You see how I'm getting worked up. It eventually, weirdly, became applied to grieving. Um, And if you have ever been through that situation, you might think to yourself, oh, I'm not really going through five stages. I'm kind of going through all of them and sometimes none of them. And why is this five stage model here? And uh, honest to God, it was written a very long time ago for people who were dying in hospitals. Uh, in America at the time when they wouldn't even use the word cancer. This is a time where, you know, wards were segregated. Women weren't told they had cancer because their husbands were told. They would use the phrase malignancy. Like that is how old that theory is. And I think the Mm. sooner we go, that might not be helpful to where we are now in 2021 and the grief that we're dealing with, the easier it will become. And you know what? Once I finish writing that book, you can read that chapter. <laughs> so, do, would, would it be fair to say, and I, I don't know, so this is a genuine question, that that people's experience of grief is as individual as they are, or, or are there some similarities that we all go through? Because, because, like you say, like you say, joining that club, that feels like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, some things that I know that I didn't know before. It's a bit like when you have kids; it's kind of like, ah, yeah. you know. And yeah, certainly, yeah. my my wife said, you know, when she gave birth, there were things like there were things you didn't tell me before I did that <laughs> that I now know about. Yeah. So, you know, where are the similarities, and where are the different? It's really, yeah, this is important to you in case someone is going through things like this. So every grief is completely unique because grief is based on a relationship. So your relationship to that person is is completely unique, even within a family. So, you know, I'm sure we all know this. If you have siblings, like, you know, you both have the same dad, you both react to them very differently or speak to each other very differently. It's not about love. It's about that connection and that connection when they're dead continues in some way and that end is reflected in the grief so your grief is completely unique the feelings and experiences that you might go through are the similarities so you know we might experience the same terrible sadness but 
we will be, you know, sad in different ways, but we are both sad. So it's, it's, it's complicated. I think also often the thing that I think is the most um, similar is the places we go through, like you said, like the hospitals, the funerals, the wakes, the, the organizing, the afterwards, like all those things are similar because we live in the same culture um, and in the same country. So that is another place of connection where we can be like, oh yes, I also had to deal with a funeral. I also had to give a eulogy and I know how that feels. But it's interesting you talk about kids, like you all know what it's like to like talk about your kids but we all know, we would never be like our children are the same they are both four like, <laughs> you'd be like oh yeah mine does that well, sometimes mine does that like it, people are people they're very they're very unique and you can't compare your grief to someone else's that's a, a really important thing like however you feel that's how you feel and if you're still upset 15 years on and your sibling or your you know your partner or your mum or whatever is fine that's fine like it, it's no it's not about right or wrong it as ever it's about how you feel but how we can connect with each other is like you know I have a dead dad some of you have dead dads you know how it feels on father's day to be like oh this is a bit shit Mm. but we can't talk about like well my dad felt like this to me like those are unique things but we can obviously empathize so yeah it's it's difficult because it is completely unique and then there are also these shared touch points yeah, it just reminds me of that quote by um, Maurice Schwartz, the American sociology professor, who said, um, death ends a life, but not a relationship. Yeah, and your relationship continues. Just because somebody is dead doesn't mean you're not dead. So therefore, the relationship with them continues because your life continues. And that's not necessarily to be like, oh, I speak to them and I pretend they're here. It's not. It's just like things that might happen to me. I can then have that conversation in my head of like, oh, what would he have thought? And like the way people say, oh, my dad would have found that funny. Like they, you can know someone so well that you know how they would react, which is a continuing process of that relationship. So it's also important that we allow people that that space to do that rather than be like well they're dead can you stop talking about them (laughs) i've I've particularly found that with with losing my brother Mm. um just you know my my mum wanted to say you know there's sort of no grief like a a mother's grief and i'm you know my other brother and i totally respected that but at the same time you know she sort of had a life before my brother arrived Mm. whereas you know every waking conscious hour of my life my brother had been there yeah and so you know you have this incredible shared intimacy and that absence is is a very sharply profound but equally it is also much more alive in the as you say the conversations you have with them and the stuff that you know the things that used to make us laugh which most people would probably look at uh, as completely insane but you know they're all based on that wonderful shared history we had together and yeah. and I felt that loss of humor apart from everything else, is like, God, no one else understands my stupid jokes now. <laughs> uh, because they were they were our jokes. Yeah. And, they were, and they were so dependent on our, our shared childhood that no, no people wouldn't get them. I mean, you can explain them, but it sort of kills them. <laughs> yeah, of course. And, and sibling loss is sometimes thought to be slightly overshadowed because of, as you mm. said, like there's the parental loss or child loss, which is like, oh gosh, how awful. And then sibling loss, if there is you know if you are de- de- parents having to deal with grieving a child and then the siblings are sort of like well how do we fit into this because we apparently haven't you know like you said no grief like a mother's grief and it, it's often considered like the a bit of an afterthought which is is changing because as you said it's so important and I spoke to Emily Dean who's a lo- lovely radio presenter and writer and she lost her sister then her mom and her dad and she said that one of the hardest things was her sister because her mum and dad were quite bohemian in the 60s and quite quite crazy and she said she lost her witness 
So she felt like she lost mm, the person she could turn yeah. to and go, do you remember when like the guy playing Doctor Who came around and at midnight they got us up out of bed and we made sandwiches and did a play? And just having someone be like, yeah, that did happen. <laughs> like, <laughs> you say, like you said, that shared that shared jokes, that shared history, that's what siblings really do kind of, you almost remember different things for each other, don't you? Like, you know, they they remember that holiday, but you remember that Christmas. And yeah, it's 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 really difficult to kind of, find a place for that I think it's changing because I think more people are talking about it and again that's so helpful that other siblings coming forward to go hey I also feel like this yeah my, I mean back on the impermanence point but my brother's um the wooden plaque on his woodland burial site just says doesn't time fly <laughs> <laughs> so Karen have you thought about your own death then have you got have you got plans <laughs> Have you, I mean, because uh, you, you're, you're saying to everybody, you know, you've got to have that conversation. Have you have you done that or is Griefcast just a massive excuse not to do it for yourself? <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a part of me that's like, I really love telling people to do things. And then I'm like, God, I've got to do that bloody will, haven't I? <laughs> like, um, no, I have, had, I have had those conversations. You know, we, we didn't really talk about it so much before my dad died, but certainly afterwards it was very thrown in and, and my mum doesn't have a perspex box but she does tend to turn up with a piece of paper and be like it's it, that's the details put it in the drawer don't I don't want to talk about it I'm like oh okay but we um I have thought a, a lot about mine and what we discuss on the show a lot is a thing called death anxiety which is quite common if you've lost anyone at a young age so sort of child up to teenager if that happens to you you tend to have death anxiety which means you basically just think about death all the time you think you're going to die if someone doesn't call you back within five minutes you're like well it's because they're dead oh well that's a shame I really like that <laughs> like any text message doesn't get through you're like god I can't believe they died oh shit oh well and we also suffer from like we can only do intense goodbyes because you're thinking is this the last time so I'm so <laughs> annoying when I think I'm like bye it was really it was really good to see you. And they're like, yep, carry on, just. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think about it a, a lot. But, yeah, I've had the conversations um, definitely with my partner, like, all the time. I'm like, this is what I want and this is what I want. And he's like. It's okay. so weird. Last goodbyes, isn't it? Like, my, mm. like my, I said, my dad died in his sleep. And I'd, I, the last time I saw him, we'd both been to see Billy Connolly together. Um, uh, Hammersmith Odeon, you know, and we had this hilarious father and son night, gave each other a huge hug. And then I went off on a trip to Antarctica and I was gone for a couple of months. And he died like the day before I got back. Um, but in hindsight, you know, it was an absolutely perfect farewell. Yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't have scripted it better. And it was almost the same with my brother. Um, you know, I happened to be in Cambridge, dropped him a text, met him for a couple of beers on a really hot, sunny July afternoon. We had an absolute cracking laugh. And at the end of it, and this is a weird one, at the end of it, he held my head in his hands and he kissed me on the forehead. And he'd never done that before. And his mate happened to snap it on the phone and he died two weeks oh, later. Oh, my goodness. And it was just like, you know, in hindsight, it was like going, it's almost like he fucking knew. He fucking mm. knew. <laughs> so many people I've interviewed have had moments like that. And, and to be fair, like, if you're listening, not everyone gets a moment like that, so don't be upset if you don't. No. But like I was I was interviewing somebody the other week and she had lost her partner and she said like two weeks before he died, he just grabbed her and said, if I die, I, I would love you. Meet someone else. Like, don't wait. I'll be okay. I love you. And she was like, oh, okay. Like what is, you know, at the time he was young and healthy and she was like, yeah, sure. What a weird thing to say. But of course, after she was like, wow, it's like he knew. But yeah, I think last moments are are really lovely and uh, you know it's that famous phrase isn't it don't go to bed on an argument like so interesting because lucy always 
she always says to me, I just want you to know if anything happens to you, I will meet someone else and I'll be really happy. <laughs> and I've never realised what an important part of the process that was before. She whispers it into my ear just before bed. She's really coping really well, actually. I think that's really brave of her to like yeah. set, get that prepped early, you know, that she doesn't yeah. have to worry. She says it like if I'm up a ladder, like when I'm cleaning windows. <laughs> Oh, I'm aware of the, the pressure on a Lancastrian to use a phrase like when I'm cleaning windows, there's a lot of baggage <laughs> that comes with that. It's almost like she's definitely imagining you going first, isn't she, John? She is not. She's imagined it. She's role played it. She auditions, guys. <laughs> we can't finish without actually looking at um, a couple of the other kind of futuristic options for, Ooh, yeah, for yeah. body disposal as well. Because, you know, we, we mentioned earlier that 75% of people are cremated. And apparently that actually, that big push for cremation only came in the late 19th century. Uh, because burial apparently was seen as gruesome or lonely. Um, and we've touched on the woodland burial site piece. My dad was buried in Hertfordshire, and I'm, you know, I'm from Norfolk and live in London. I remember my mum, who still lives in Norfolk, saying, this is a very nice place. I wouldn't mind being buried here, but it's a bit far away. Uh, which, point, <laughs> which, point, which point my brothers and I pointed out that that really wasn't her concern. Uh, but there is some interesting technologies coming down the track. There's a thing called resumation, uh, which is basically alkaline hydrolysis, where you get put in a pressurised canister and submerged in a mixture of water and potassium hydroxide at 150 degrees centigrade for three or four hours. That dissolves off all the flesh and, and leaves behind some soft grayish bones. Then they, dry, then they dry you in an oven, and then they grind you down into a, into a white powder uh, and dispose They've of already them. done that to me, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's very efficient, very environmentally friendly. Like cremation, but like slightly cleaner. It's slightly cleaner. They boil you and dry you, basically. Okay. Uh, and then there's cryomation. Mm. This is where they put you in at minus 200 degrees. And then you obviously become very brittle. Um, and then they vibrate you. So you basically fragment into tiny bits of biodegradable dust. And then you can be sprinkled anywhere. Then there's the sort of mushroom suits they can put you in now, which are organic cotton. So you don't even need a coffin at all. Oh, wow. So you put on an organic suit, which has been impregnated with um, mushroom spores. Uh, which then rapidly uh, sprout to decompose you at a higher rate. You can have your cremation ash put into concrete and made into an artificial reef. Or my favourite, which is actually just opened in the US this week, which is a company called Recompose, which is essentially human composting. And it's the CEO of this company is called Katrina Spade. Would you believe it? <laughs> if that's not a great example of nominative determinism, I don't know what is. Um, and that, then you, they put you in a in a vessel full of wood chips and straw for thirty days, uh, and then into a larger sort of curing bin, and you essentially come out as as soil, which can be put anywhere. So there's no burn, no embalming, no space, just gentle peace. Well, my big thing is like I don't want something where people have to go and clean the frigging thing or put flowers and i like the idea of compost i can't imagine the bitter taste that would come out of anything that grew from <laughs> soil made of my wizened soul but just that idea of closure that, that i understand the importance of funerals and you know the saying goodbye and all that but after that for me personally don't you know walk through a wood if you knew i liked that wood but don't fucking come and have to clean stuff and you know mm. feel guilty the week you didn't go because i'm not there anymore you know as, as listeners to this podcast will know i'm i'm, I'm barely here now so <laughs> just, just be free 
I'm aware, I'm very aware of how you've come to do seven series because I think we could talk forever. So I think we should release you, uh, Carrie Ads, <laughs> with massive thanks and, and allow you to live some life away from us before <laughs> the inevitable death that comes to us all. So Carrie, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, the podcast is The, the Grief Cast uh, and all episodes are available everywhere you get podcasts. And the book is to be released and it's called You Are Not Alone. You're not alone. Yeah, release next year. Fingers crossed. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks, so, Carriad Lloyd there from the Griefcast. I, th- I think there's a, there is a link between Carriad's podcast and our own, which is that the topics may seem difficult, but what both podcasts I think have in their strength is that the very act of discussing these things, whatever our topic is, and 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 in Carriad's case grief and death there's a reward it's hard to hard to sort of front up to sometimes you think it would be easier not to have these conversations but there's a reward in just the act of having them and you feel better after talking about them and we've done it with some sort of hard topics the future of the sex industry and cancer and things like that and with carry thing I, I feel better now just for that conversation about that hour-long chat about death and the end of my life and your lives i enjoyed that and i feel better guys <laughs> <laughs> is there something wrong with me uh, i just love the way you said i feel better about you two dying i think is basically what you're saying there um which is um i don't know what's a nice thing to say i mean do you think you'll know us that long well it depends you could go in the next 10 minutes <laughs> we don't know it may happen live <laughs> It may be John Richardson and Future Not next week. We don't know. That'd be a hell of a way to end a podcast on death if one of us were to actually croak it during the Well, I tell you what as well, if one of you goes in the next week and this is played in court, I am in deep shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, any, any thoughts to add on uh, the topic of death? Yeah, I, well, I was reflecting on what Karen was saying and actually just touching on the point that you were making there, John. It's like, actually, so much of life is about death denial. We get into this point where it's a literal loss of control you know death is is an unmanageable threat it's unresolvable and you know you can cope with that in in one of two ways and a lot of that is to do with uh, like desires for immortality and that's either a sort of a literal immortality so a belief in an afterlife and all the religious stuff around reincarnation all the sort of symbolic stuff where it's about culture country family work or, or even shopping and so much of our like many of our problems Actually, and we're talking about systemic challenges throughout our series on these podcasts um, are to do with death anxiety, I think. You know, the culture wars, the issues around climate change, the kind of the mindless, conspicuous consumption that goes on. And what you find, I think, when you dig down into this is that dealing with that that anxiety, when we actually confront death, it makes us cling more tightly to our existing worldviews. So you either... get a bit more negative and actually it becomes about you know othering and about in-group preservation uh stereotyping of others or it can become very positive it can become about presence and kindness and forgiveness and relationships and you know i think in some ways we become more who we are when we actually engage with death and em forster said death destroys a man but the idea of death saves him and so i think it's only by that confrontation with mortality that we can perhaps question who we think we really are mm, i think steve jobs said that the best gift you've ever given is the fact that you're going to die so it means you've only got one life don't don't spend it living somebody else's or somebody else's idea of your life because you've only you know and uh, he said that was his the greatest gift you could be given was the fact that your life was finite i think personally 
I totally disagree. With <laughs> and uh, I would happily, I would happily um, get rid of death if I could. Would you really? Yeah, I do. I really struggle with it. I really struggle with it, and I really struggle with the the loss of it. You know. So I think about, for instance, my my beloved Caroline. You know, and the idea that my time with her is finite is actually, I think, really tragic because I'd love to be with her for a thousand years. You know, and I, so I find I do find it really, really difficult to deal with. But I do, uh, but I do agree with you that having the conversation is really important. The very fact that you know that you, your your time with Caroline is limited is what makes it so special, surely. If you knew you were going to live forever, there may be a bit of you thinking, there might be someone somewhere else. No. But- I've got time now to go and check New Zealand, and I didn't before. <laughs> no, I, I, I disagree, because if your relationship's working, and you, you know, it generally gets better as you get older, because you, you learn about each other more. And I would say that, you know, it has its ups and downs, but my relationship with lots of things, actually, you know, with with life, with philosophy, with work, with my family, you know, gets with better me. because you. Well, there's exceptions, obviously, to everyone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, but your your ability to handle the world gets better as you get older. What was it? Oscar Wilde said, um, "Youth is wasted on the young." So there is a there is a bit of me that kind of feels mm. I'll, I'll just get to you know wherever it is you know ninety four or whatever thing. I've nailed it. I've I've worked. I've, I've finally doing life well and then i'll croak it and that would seem like a bit of a bit of a fucker really it's like getting it's like getting to the graduation getting your exam results or whatever and then, and then going oh that career doesn't exist anymore perhaps it's supposed to take a lifetime to master though because otherwise you'd just be absolutely insufferable in your youth i think the loss of it is real and i and I, I i really resent it i really i think it's fucking awful but having said all that and i'll repeat myself the fact that it is going to happen that makes what Carad is doing and kind of the conversation we're having, I think, even more important because at some point I am going to have to deal with it. And I think that is going to be helped by having, as you say, the difficult conversations that you don't want to. I want to say so much on this topic because you, I mean, if you cure death, then there's only, you can't have that many more new people, can you? Because the old ones won't die. So we need to, you know, I just think well, this generation can't be the one that lives forever. Uh, I'm, I'd be happy for you to have a few lifetimes, Mark. But to be honest, there's, there's quite a few people out there. Uh, who, well, now we get into the whole transhumanism argument. Well, exactly. Um, and I was going to say, worth yes. preempting, Saying that this is this is a topic that we will cover uh, as part of a, an episode, I think, on on population and yes. a subsequent episode on on aging. So, if you were listening to this podcast screaming, you know, questions about transhumanism and aging and the likes, then rest assured your queries will be covered in the coming weeks. Um, so now we end as we we always do on pointless futures. And uh, anyone care to nominate a pointless future as we discuss death? Death. Death. Yeah. Death itself. I mean, Mark's just said it. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to die. So it is a pointless future from your perspective, isn't it? I don't. I mean, I don't think it's pointless. Actually, I think it's very profound, and that's what makes it so so troubling in a way. So, in a way, death isn't pointless because it gives you a point. But at the same time, it's also pointless because you die. Uh, so it's the ultimate pointless yet pointed future. Ultimate pointless. My God, you've just given me an idea for a Dave spin-off that is going to. F- Frankly, change my career and my bank balance. <laughs> Ultimate pointless worrier. Me and Richard Osman ask a hundred people what they're worried about. Right, let's end this podcast. I've got to speak to my agent. Um, <laughs> now, while we're discussing pointless futures, we have had a, a, an email on the topic from Andy from Stafford. I'm from Stafford. I'm from Stafford. I didn't know you were from Stafford. Yeah, well, um, Staffordshire. I'm from. I'm from a little place called Utoxeter, actually. 
Oh, I know. There's a race course there, isn't there? There is. There's only two things that people know about Utoxter, which is there's a race course there, and it's where uh, Samuel Johnson, the man who invented the dictionary, caught the cold that killed him. I like to joke that my town, you know, has a long history of killing intellectuals. <laughs> so hey, um, hey, there are three things people know about Utoxter. What's the other one? You. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hang on. The people who wrote Sailing. The, the Sutherland brothers, they came from Utoxeter. There you go. I'm, I'm, I'm keeping the number at three. Um, it <laughs> just dawned on me while listening to your economics episode that there may be an ulterior motive to drug dealers reusing plastic pots. I work in police forensics. Oh, how exciting. I would estimate that 60 to 75% of our workload is chemically treating plastic packaging from drug-related crimes to develop fingerprints. So I'm getting so excited, I can barely read this email, uh, to identify offenders that have handled the packaging. One of the main problems with reusing the packaging is it would therefore be laden with thousands of different prints and be near on impossible to identify those involved in specific crimes uh, a caveat to me writing in is that i now worry if the drug dealers hadn't already realized this and are listening to you reading this on your podcast they may all revert to this pointless future to make prosecuting them nigh on impossible bollocks keep up the good work andy from stafford <laughs> I love the idea that this podcast is being listened to by both police forensics experts and drug dealers. I picture them like next door in a hotel room, just in rooms next door, both chuckling at the same point. And then they realize because their laughs are in tandem, they're listening to the same podcast and then they go to the bar and they actually get on. Um, thank you for all your texts and emails. Uh, the place where you can send them is as ever here. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at john, J-O-N, and the futurenauts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letter swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. Uh, and that concludes this week's show. Uh, thank you to our guest, uh, Carrie Lloyd, and thank you to uh, you, Mark and Ed, for your company. Um, whatever you're doing in the next seven days, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet. From me, John Richardson, goodbye. And from me, Mark Stevenson, goodbye. And I'm going to sign off in the way that my daughter corrupts her saying of goodbye, which is die. Die, everyone. Die, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>